You all ready for God's Word? You want to dive into God's Word together? I'm really excited. Today, I'm beginning a series of messages called Unstuck, everybody. Unstuck. And this really has to do with something that God has put on my heart. I'll share more about that in a a moment. But for now, turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. Now, um, if you don't know what's going on in Exodus 14, let let me catch you up really quick. Let me recap it for you. But we know that God's people ended up in Egypt. That was in the days of of Joseph and Jacob, right? And then they eventually are enslaved in Egypt. Now, most of the time we say they were in Egypt or slaves. A lot of people will assign 400 years or 430 years. And I understand where we get that number. God said, my people are going to be sojourners in a land that's not theirs for 430 years. And that was to Abraham. Um, They were probably slaves, in my opinion, if you look at the data, they were probably only slaves for about 215 years. And a lot of that has to do with, if you look at what God said to Abraham and what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, because he assigns the 430 years starting basically with Abraham and then Isaac and then so on. And so, but the point is they were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. Okay. And theologians look at it differently. And, and it's not that the Bible is, is contradicting itself. It just depends on data we either don't have. And so based on the data we do have, there's a couple of ways it could be applied. But what we know, and let me just say this very clearly, um, there is historical data that Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt in, in the time the Bible says they were there. Because people will say, well, there's no, there's no evidence of the Exodus. Not actually true. There is evidence that, that there were uh, Hebrew slaves in Egypt in, you know, uh, up until 1446, which is when the Bible basically says if you do the generations from Solomon, that's about where it gets to. Um, that's when the Bible says the Exodus occurred, 1446. So there is actually extra biblical evidence that there were slaves, they did leave Egypt in 1446, and they arrived in Canaan. We actually have archaeological, extra-biblical evidence that they arrived in Canaan in 1406. And uh, they've redated. They, there was a, 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 a female archaeologist who was uh, not a person of faith who misdated the findings of Jericho. But now what we know, having uh, new data, is uh, in 1406... The children of Israel entered the promised land. And if you like stuff like that, there's a great book written by Dr. Dr. Titus Kennedy called Unearthing the Bible. And he's written two or three different books. One is about evidence, archaeological evidence for Jesus. But my point is this. So we know the Hebrews were enslaved by the Egyptians. And this is where God tells Moses, um, I want you to bring out my, my, I want you to lead them out. Moses goes to Pharaoh. There's 10 plagues. And then Pharaoh finally lets them go after the plague of the firstborn. And then they leave. And then they're wandering around uh, essentially probably the Sinai Peninsula. There's about four viable options for where the Red Sea crossing actually took place. Um, But again, a lot of that has not been studied. And a lot of that evidence would have been swept away over the years. But we know they left 1446. Archaeologists will tell us and they arrived 1406. So we know there was an exodus. So they lead them out, and most of you know the story. They get trapped, essentially, if you will, and they'll use that loosely, at the Red Sea. And then God does a miracle, parts the Red Sea, and he drowns the armies of Egypt. Okay? So with that, why don't you stand with me? I love for us to honor the Word of God. And we're going to start reading. I'm going to read a good portion of Scripture. 
Um, and then we're going to talk about it. Exodus 14 says, Then Moses said, or sorry, then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihiroth. Don't you love coming to hear a redneck say Hebrew words? <laughs> Some of them you got to be careful with. Pharaoh's chair. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon, and you shall encamp facing by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to his people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And he said, what is this that we've done? We've let our workforce go. So he made, that's my version. It's not actually in the Bible. So he made ready his chariot and he took his army with him and he took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them, over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel. While the people of Israel were going out defiantly, the Egyptians pursued them all and Pharaoh's horses and chariots and the horsemen and his army. And he overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pihahiroth, everybody. If you're looking for a, a, a name, like, I don't know, there's your good one, Pihahiroth. Anyways, in front of Baal, that's our word for the day, Sesame Street. Anyways, Baal Zephon, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not, that we, is it not what we said to you, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians then to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think when God's moving in my life, the best thing I can do is be quiet. <laughs> Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to, everybody say this, go forward. Amen. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the people of Israel will go through on dry ground. And I'll harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Come on, everybody. I call this message the way forward. The way forward. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this time together, for your presence that we have really not just felt but enjoyed, just being in your presence today. God, thank you for the word of God. And Lord, as we open it together, Lord, we open our hearts. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes, Lord, spiritual eyes that we can see your truth. Help us, God, to take it and pull it into our heart, put it into our hearts, God, that it would produce fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing in God's house today. Unstuck, everybody. Unstuck. I remember when I was preparing this, I remember um, when I was in high school, I had, a, I had a Camaro. And so you didn't get those much off the pavement. Uh, but I had a, a lot of friends that had Jeeps. And I love Jeeps. I don't own one. I just think they're cool. 
Um, and so, uh, but we used to, we would go, anybody ever been mudding? Anybody? Now I know where the rednecks are in the room, you know, it's like, what do y'all do for entertainment? We try to get our Jeep stuck in the mud. <laughs> right? And so I had friends, we had Jeeps, and, um, and I remember one time we were on this, it was a pipeline right away because those things would flood after rain, and, and you get Jeeps out there. And we got this Jeep, not just stuck, we got it buried. Like, it had water flowing through the Jeep. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it is completely, like, it is stuck, stuck. And we tried everything to unstuck it, everybody. We tried everything to get that thing out. We broke two different tow straps. We had two Jeeps trying to pull one Jeep. It was buried. It was stuck. And how many know when something's stuck like that, Really, the only thing you can think about is how to get unstuck. Like, it didn't seem feasible just to stay here the rest of our lives on this pipeline right away in a Jeep with water, you know, running through it. It seemed like, no, no, we need, we need to do something. We need to find a way forward. And eventually we did. Back in those days, uh, we uh, didn't have cell phones. I know probably for my kids and many in here, you're like, what? Yeah. Uh, used to, phones were attached to the wall. It's kind of a crazy thing. They had lines and wires and... Uh, and you didn't have them in your pocket, so we had to hike to the first house we could find with a phone, and we had to call a tow truck, and uh, anyways, tow truck got us out. But I was thinking about being stuck. That just got me thinking about being stuck. And, and in my opinion, um, I'm concerned that our, in our nation, I think a lot of people are stuck. I think a lot of people are stuck in the mud. And... And I'll say this, um, I think since the pandemic, everyone has shifted the way that we live. And between the constant 24-hour news cycle where something's about to kill us every day, um, I, don't, I just want to say this, and I know you know this, but sometimes I just want to say, you do understand that in order to sell news, they need to create a crisis so you'll watch the news. I don't want to get into that. I'm not trying to take a political stance. I'm just saying, if you understand the psychology of how this works, if the news came on and said, everything's going really well, like no real problems in the world, see y'all next week, they would sell nothing. They would sell no advertisements. No one would watch their channel, right? That's why there's not tons of good news. Like they basically tell you every day, you're going to die. And then right at the end, they put a nice story about a puppy or something like that. Isn't it nice? And so my point is, though, I feel like since the pandemic, a lot of, and I would say believers, but the world, have lived reactionary. We're reacting to whatever the news cycle is. We're reacting to whatever they're saying is coming. In other words, we're no longer, I feel like we're no longer charting a course and advancing and moving forward. We're just trying not to get wiped out. We're, we're just trying to hunker down, if you will, and play it safe and be conservative, right? And try not to lose our money and try not to lose our job and try not to lose our health. And, and I just feel like we're reacting to the world. And, and really to give you the overarching idea, and then we'll break it down together of the message today. I feel the word of the Lord is to give you permission to say you can move forward now. 
that with God, God is always advancing. His kingdom is always expanding. God always has a plan. And we're not supposed to live reactionary lives to everything that's going on with the world, but rather we're supposed to, in unity with God, advance with him through life and be victorious. May I remind you that he, Jesus, leads us in triumph. That applies a couple of things. Number one, implicit in that scripture is he is leading, meaning we are moving, and we are moving with him, meaning we are unified. And when we're moving with him, unified, there is victory. Come on, somebody, help me this morning. And so I want to talk about getting unstuck, and I want to talk about the way forward, and, and I want to look at Israel here. Um, and I really just have two points. It doesn't make the sermon any shorter. Y'all know me, but I just have two points. Um, and, and, I, and when you think about the way forward, now there's a lot of things I could say about the way forward, but this is where I felt like the Holy Spirit led me. And two things that I want to, that probably, they almost don't even sound like sermon points, but it's what I feel like we need to talk about. So write this down. The first one is this, the way forward is to possess your own life. The way forward is to take possession of your own life. Listen to me. Before you can possess God's promise, you will have to possess your life. When I'm looking at this story of Israel, it's almost, I don't know if it's the way I look at it, and probably, let's be honest, if I happen to be lucky enough to be in these days and be written in, in some type of Bible verse, in other words, if you wrote the history of Marty, I mean, we have the history of Israel because it's God's elect people, but, but if you had the history of Marty and that was in the Bible, I would laugh at my own story, trust me. But sometimes when I read texts like this, I'm a little bit perplexed. I, my, my, Jana laughs at me all the time because even just the other day, yesterday, we were driving and we saw a person with a sign. And when I read the sign, I immediately looked at her and this is my phrase, I got questions. <laughs> and I spent the next 15 minutes trying to figure out what was going on with this sign and having, anyways, it doesn't matter. So the point is, I read scripture that way. I read it, I'm inquisitive and I think, I got questions. Because what Israel is saying is they pray, that's good, they pray to God, then they get with Moses. And how many knows, if it's going bad, the first thing you do is blame the leader. Yeah. Amen, right? No, you don't. What in the world? That's not what... <laughs> Everybody's like, yes, it's your fault. Yes, praise the Lord. <laughs> Anyways, so they get with Moses, and this is what they say. Were there not enough graves in Egypt, Moses? We could have died happy there as slaves, almost starving to death and making bricks with no straw. It was a wonderful life. And then here you bring us out here. You deliver us from the Egyptians, and now we're going to die. I don't know. You know what I failed to find in the text? I failed to find where God forced them to leave Egypt. I failed to find where Moses kidnapped them. There's roughly 600,000 men, so you could say most theologians think two, two and a half million people. And, and I don't know. I mean, Moses is pretty persuasive, I guess. But I didn't see where he got a, his staff and said, look, y'all get out of Egypt or I'm going to hit you with this staff. <laughs> you know what? You do find the Bible where God tells Moses, my children have been praying to me for deliverance for hundreds of years. And I have heard them. Isn't it interesting that sometimes we pray and then God moves. And when he doesn't move the way we think he should move, then we're mad about him moving. 
Anybody else ever had that experience with the Lord? Right? I think that Israel, you know, Egypt's like, you know, yes, Lord. Uh, yes, deliver me from Egypt. But then I was, expe- I was expecting like a limo to the Red Sea and a yacht across it. Hello, you're God and everything. It's so interesting to me. A lot of times we pray and we pray and we pray and then God starts moving because everything that's happening at this point is two things. It's the purpose of God. It is in the response of their plea, but it's the plan of God. So essentially God is answering their prayer and they're mad about it because it doesn't look like it's supposed to look, right? It's like when you're praying for, you need a financial increase and you're praying and God gives you overtime. Come on, somebody. Like somebody got, he's like, he got up, he got up in my pew already. What's he doing in my pew? God, I need you to bless me and multiply. I need more money, God. Overtime. Oh, God. Oh, I was praying for lottery numbers. I wasn't praying for overtime. Right? I, you, you may want to write this down, but, but I want you to, to understand this. It, and this may sound a little off, but let me explain. God is not actually, actually responsible for you. God is responsible to you. And those are not the same thing. For God to take responsibility for you would be a violation of his nature and a violation of his creation in that he created you as a free will moral agent. But for God to be responsible to you is no violation at all. That means as long as God is true to himself, as long as God is who he says and does what he says he's going to do, then he's responsible to you. God is responsible at this point, yes, to guide, but you got to follow. God is responsible to save, but you have to accept it. God is responsible to forgive, but you've got to ask for it. You see what I'm saying? So God is responsible to you to be everything that he says he is and do everything that he says he was going to do, but he is not responsible for what you do. He's not responsible for your decisions. He's not responsible for your attitude. He's not responsible for your emotions. He's not responsible, come on somebody, for some of the messes that we make. But he is responsible to be exactly who he is. You see, the problem that I see in our culture is our culture is beginning to be marked by, uh, it's like a value of irresponsibility. It's almost like we value it. Like no one's really responsible for themselves. Um, in fact, what's kind of crazy is in, in our world, it's, it's like we don't possess our own life, but we want to possess everybody else's. In other words, I don't want to be responsible for me. I don't want to be responsible for my emotions. I don't want to be responsible for my life choices, but... I do want to tell you how to live your life. I do want to tell you what to value. I do want to tell you what decisions to make. In fact, if you don't live your life the way that I prescribe, now all of a sudden I've got a problem. See, the problem with being irresponsible and when I'm not taking responsibility for my own life is now I am living in reaction to the world around me just like we see with Israel here. They're reacting to Egypt Right, And so they're living in reaction to their circumstances. They're living in reaction to what's going on. They're living in reaction to the world around me. And they're not owning their own life. They're not taking control of their own life. Come on. The fruit of the Spirit, everybody, is 
Self-control, not others' control. So um, that word self-control in the Greek, it actually means to gain mastery up. So the Holy Spirit empowers me to master myself. The Holy Spirit empowers me to master my decisions, to master my emotions, to master how I feel and what I do and what I choose. He actually empowers me to master my purpose and to master my calling. God, see, God is responsible too, but not for. So here's what God does. He said, I'm going to be God. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, but you're going to have to yield to him. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, but you're going to have to follow him. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to actually choose to control yourself. And what I see in the culture is something very, very different. In fact, what I see in the culture is this irresponsibility that's kind of marked really by these two kind of, what would you call them, facets of this or probably not categories, maybe facets, maybe manifestations. But how this works out in people's lives, what I see now more than ever, on this side you have the victims and on this side you have the entitled. And sometimes you have entitled victims. Think, Think with me. Because what I see in our culture so many times, listen, when, when people, listen, let me say this so I can say what I need to say and you know that I care and I'm empathic and I understand. We have all been victimized. We have all, we have all had trauma in our lives. I, it's, it's unlikely that I could find any person in here that hasn't experienced some sort of trauma. And some of those traumas we might classify as being greater than other traumas, but that may be, that's very subjective depending on who you're talking to. Does that make sense? But what is true, we've all endured things. That's my point. And what I want you to know is those things are real. Those things are painful. But I also need you to understand this. What may, what, whatever happened to you was not your fault, but it is your fault what you do after. Are you with me? Like, if someone hurt you, abused you, wronged you, that was not your fault. That was their sin, right? But what you do after that is your fault. And if you spend the rest of your life living as a victim, then make no mistake, you're, you're putting the person who hurt you in charge of your life for the rest of your life. That's why forgiveness is so powerful, because forgiveness says, you don't get to be in charge of my life, I get to be in charge of my life. And can I remind you, by the way, forgiveness is so powerful, because while we love talking about how the Lord has forgiven us, Jesus died for my sin, right? But you also know Jesus died for the sin committed against me? So my point is, that yes, I may have been hurt and wronged and, and all those things are true and they have consequences, but I get to decide, am I going to see a pastor? Am I going to get in a, a life group or a freedom group? Am I going to go to discipleship class? Am I going to see a counselor? Am I going to forgive? See, what happens after that's 100% my fault. And when I choose not to take responsibility for myself and I say, no, I'm just going to stay a victim because it always gives me an excuse, then you're making the person who sinned against you in charge of your life. You're giving them authority of your life. You're not even giving God authority of your life. You're giving them authority of your life because every decision is run by what they did. Other thing I see is this entitlement, which basically says I was born so the world owes me something. 
Aren't we having fun? Pastor, I just wanted to be encouraged. We're getting there. We're getting there. Um, but it's so prevalent today that it just seems to me that there are a lot of people that, that almost feel like, yeah, yeah, I got the loan, but I shouldn't have to pay it. Yeah, I made the decision, but I shouldn't suffer the consequences. Um, yeah, I, you know, this person should do this for me. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I want the promotion, but I shouldn't have to work for it. I want the pay, but I shouldn't actually have to work for it. It's like this sense of entitlement that exists in our world today. And it's crippling us. And I'll tell you why both of these cripple us, whether it's you're talking about being a victim or you're talking about being entitled. Listen to me very carefully. They're both powerless positions. They're powerless. The victim says, I'm not responsible for me. What they did is responsible for me. And I have, there's nothing I can do about it. That's powerless. Entitlement says, in other words, they wronged me and I'm powerless. And entitlement says, they're not giving to me, so there's nothing I can do. Like, here's an idea. If you want a promotion, show up early and work hard. Take the overtime when it's available, right? Like, I've talked to my kids about this. When I started out, I was 15 years old, started out in the oil field, and I took every bit of overtime they'd let me have because I like money. You do too. That's why you have a job. I liked eating. I liked having clothes. I liked having gasoline. Anybody else like those things? I didn't assume that the government was supposed to give me those things all the time. I assumed that I was supposed to go earn a living. This doesn't seem very popular. I thought I'd get more excitement from this. (laughs) My point was that Whenever there was overtime, I took the overtime. I showed up early. I was there. And because of that, um, when you hire in the oil field as a teenager, you're, you're a worm. That's your status. And you weed eat uh, pits and plants and it's hard work, right? But because, listen to me, but because I was reliable, because I was faithful, I spent about a month on that crew and I got upgraded to a road crew where I drove a piece of equipment. I don't know about you, but when you're 15, listen, that's high cotton. Because I wasn't running a weed eater like this all day long. I was sitting on tractor like, hey, what's up? My point is that, that there's irresponsibility and it manifests itself. And please understand that, that even God, no one really owes you anything. So take responsibility for your life. And please understand what they did was wrong, but what you do determines where your life's going from here. So take responsibility for your life. Are you with me? Because listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. I understand that God is sovereign, okay? Sovereign just means that he, is, he reigns supreme. There is no rule higher. There is no authority greater. But that doesn't mean God controls everything. Right? So there's something for me to do. And I'm afraid some of us are sitting back in reaction to the world, and then some of us are sitting back saying, I'm just waiting on God to do something. And I'm concerned maybe God's waiting on you to do something. Are you with me? You say, well, God's sovereign. He's in control. And I don't have time to teach this. But yes, there is the sovereignty of God. But, but it's misapplied, I think, many times a day. That, that does mean God is control, in control ultimately. 
But it doesn't mean that God is in control of every decision and we are free will moral agents. So you have to balance sovereignty with man's responsibility. Does that make sense? So we're talking about the sovereignty of God. He, he is supreme. There is no one higher. There is no rule greater, right? In fact, um, theologian A.W. Pink, one of the great theologians of the 19th century, he said, this is what makes God God. He called it his godness is his sovereignty. There is no one above him. If, that, if there were anyone above him, they would be God. Are you with me? But he's the highest, and he is the author, and so he has the authority, and his kingdom reigns, right? And I could show you a lot of scriptures on that, but I think most people are grasping the fact that God is sovereign. But that doesn't mean that God is going to control every facet of your life and make every decision for you. So we have to couple God's sovereignty with man's responsibility. Uh, Does anyone know who King Charles is? It used to be Queen Elizabeth. You know who King Charles is? The King of England, everybody, right? Would everybody agree like he's the greatest authority in England? But would we all agree that everybody in England makes their own decisions about what they wear, what they eat, where they go, what they do? Do do you see it's the same with God? God in his sovereignty, he is working his plan, but he's working it through people and he's working it through creation and he's doing that without violating free will. Are you with me? So yes, God is working his plan, but that doesn't mean God's micromanaging what socks you wore today. So you have to couple God is sovereign, but I'm ultimately responsible for me. God's responsible to me. I'm responsible for me. In fact, let me give you just wonder. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. Paul to the Galatians. This is Eugene Patterson. This is how he interprets it in the Message Bible. It says, each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. That's a good verse for the year, isn't it? Take responsibility for doing the best you can with your own life. I mean, oh, here's, this is a, I just put this in here because I love this verse. Proverbs 19.3, people ruin their lives by their own foolishness and then they are angry at the Lord. Like, you don't need to even put points with that. That's a good sermon. Are you with me? So here's the bottom line. I'm responsible for how I respond to the gospel or how I respond to God. I'm responsible for my obedience to God. I'm responsible for my decisions. I don't know if you know this. I'm responsible for my emotions. Be angry and sin. So I've actually got to be responsible for me. If I want to see God work and move in my life, I have to be responsible for me. I can't just sit back and say, God, when you want to do something with my life, like I'm here. God, when you want to, I'm here. No, no, no. You get up. That's why, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's the irresponsibility. Like, God, you know, my life, you know, my life just stinks. God may be saying, change it. I don't like where I work. Apply somewhere else. Right? Listen, the greatest amount of change you can experience in your life is not when you change someone else or when you change your environment, but when you change yourself. You have very little control of your environment. You have typically no control over anyone else. If you've ever raised a two-year-old, you understand what I'm saying. (laughs) Are you with me? But you do have control over you. Take responsibility for you, right? And so we have to possess and take possession of our own lives. Here's the second thing. And then practice being proactive. In other words, so I'm owning my own life and I'm taking initiative. 
So practice productivity. In other words, practice being proactive. Look, look at what we read it together. Exodus 14, 15, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying to me? Now I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. And then the children, he said, Tell the children of Israel, go forward. Now, here's, here's why I want to come back to that. Moses said, Why are you crying to me? I don't know about you, but I thought Moses' response was good. I'm about to die. What should I do? Prayer seems logical. Are you with me? Right? I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, here comes the greatest military force in the world, and we have a bunch of slaves with sticks. Seems prayer would be on the highest part of the list for a strategy at this moment. Are you with me? But isn't it so interesting that God says, why are you praying to me? In other words, God said, your deliverance is not based on what I'm about to do. Your deliverance is contingent upon what you're about to choose to do. Because he didn't say, stand back, Moses, and I'll take care of it. He said, no, you tell Israel to go forward. Anybody else see the problem with that? Forward was water. Go forward. I think they're thinking, where? And this makes a great point that many times trusting God is about taking steps that don't make sense. That moving forward many times is about taking a step where there doesn't seem to be a step. Are you with me? And God says, why are you crying out to me? I'd be like, I don't know, because you're God. And I'm out here with two million slaves and I got a stick. Okay, God, that's why I'm crying to you. You didn't give me a yacht. I don't even have a canoe. I got a stick. Right? Sometimes you got to take inventory in your life because God used that stick to deliver them so many times. And God said, yeah, the stick's all you need. Just stretch it out. <laughs> Come on, somebody. It's God, listen, God never uses what you don't have. That is so good. God will never call you to be something you're not, and he'll never try to use something you don't have. God always starts with who you are and uses what you have. Are you with me? So when God says move forward, know this, you have everything you need to move forward. When God says move forward, know you're all you need to be to move forward. You and God, y'all got it. It may look iffy, it may seem confusing, but God says, why are you praying to me? Tell Israel to. Why are you crying out to me? It's time for you to. Come on, look at somebody right now and say, this year I'm going forward. I'm going forward this year. I'm not holding up this year. I'm going forward this year. I need to tell you one thing about God. I'm going to try to get us out of here. Well, okay, I may have lied. Let's work this out together. This is what you need to know about your God. Your God cannot react. There's not been one time in the course of human history where you could even say the history of the whole universe that God ever reacted. Do you know why? Because God, these are characteristics of God or attributes of God. God, number one, is all-knowing. We call it omniscience. His omniscience. 
right? And also God is unchangeable. And so I don't know about you, but you need to understand it helps me to know that God is not waiting on tomorrow to come up with a plan, that God has actually been working his plan since creation, and today is just a part of it. Hear what I just told you. Israel is looking at what's going on, like we're trapped by the Red Sea, here's this big army, and they're like, this was a miscalculation, and God was like, no, this is my master plan. By the way, sometimes God's master plan looks like a miscalculation. But it is still not what it looks like. See, Israel thinks they're under attack. God thinks Egypt is under attack. Do you see it? Do you see it? God's like, no. Remember, I told you, like, God is the one. They had it set in ways. They leave Egypt. They've got the promised land set in ways. The route they're going. If you remember, God started this thing with, no, I want you to jig a little bit to the left, and I want you to turn back to the right. In other words, God got in there and started rerouting them, and he said, because if you'll move this way and then this way, Egypt, Pharaoh will think you're lost and they'll come get you. In other words, God is baiting the enemy with Egypt. I don't know, that's not very comforting to me. I don't really have a good quib for that at all. It doesn't sound like fun to be the bait for the enemy, but that's exactly what God's doing with Israel at this moment. Are you with me? And God's drawing them in. And so Israel thinks we're under attack. And God's like, no, you're not under attack. Egypt's under attack. They just don't know it. Because God can't react. I understand. Let me just say this time out because I will get these questions, and they're good questions. People say, well, in the Bible, it looks like God. You know, we're talking about the immutability of God. So when we talk about the immutability of God, that's just the doctrine. That's what we call it. It just means God cannot change. Malachi 3.3, God doesn't change, right? James 1, there's no variation or shadow of turning or changing in God. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? All of these point to God doesn't, doesn't change, okay? But I understand in Scripture, if you read it, like this is where I think we have to be, we have to allow questions, and we also have to study the Word so we understand, because there are places in the Bible where it looks like God changed His mind, right? I mean, you, I mean God repented that He made man. That's Noah, Right, um, uh, God um, with Moses was going to wipe out. It, it appears that God's going to wipe out Israel, and then Moses intercedes. Uh, Jonah is sent to Nineveh, and God said, "I'm going to bring judgment to Nineveh." And then God supposedly doesn't, but um, actually, there's a revival in Nineveh, Nineveh. Then there's Hezekiah, and it looks like so. There's a lot of places in Scripture, but let me help you. These are not God's immutability and some of the things we see in scripture where it looks like God is changing his mind are not irreconcilable when you understand scripture and how it came to be. And without getting real deep in that, inspiration doesn't means inspiration doesn't mean God took over or possessed the hands of men and they wrote the Bible. It's, it wasn't mechanical writing. Inspiration means God moved on them. It's what Peter says. No prophecy of Scripture came by the will of man, but they were moved on and led about by the Holy Spirit. So God superintended. He moved on man in a way that gave us the Bible. Does that make sense? But man is still man. And so the language of the Bible, most of the Bible is prose language, and it's written in, I'm going to give you my word, and then I'll give you the theological word if it means anything to you. My word is the language of observation, 
the language of observation. Uh, the theological word is phenomenological language, okay? And so all that means is they wrote down as they saw it, meaning when Joshua says the sun stood still, he's not a scientist, and in that day, you know, or, or when the Bible says the sun moved across the sky, well, we know the sun doesn't move. But remember, it wasn't written by scientists. It was written by men, and they're saying, well, it looked like the sun stood still to us, right? That's what it looked like to us. So many times when you see like Jonah and Nineveh or Hezekiah and those things, you have to understand because God is immutable and because God is omniscient, God already knew the interactions of man. So the the changes that you see are because man is reacting to God. It is not because God is reacting to man. So his purpose was fixed, but the Bible being written in phenomenological language, many of the times we, they, the writers put, I'll give you another one, human characteristics, you know, they ascribe human characteristics to God, theological word, anthropomorphic, if you care, but, but that means where we give God hands and arms and, and eyes and ears and that he hears us with his ears and sees us with his eyes and the strong arm of the Lord. Well, God is incorporeal, which means that God does not have a body. He's a spirit. He doesn't have a body. But the authors trying, you know, because the way God moved on them, they're trying to understand it and they're trying to write it. So they ascribe characteristics to God. And that's many times when they're saying God changed his mind, it wasn't that God ever changed his mind. It appeared to them God changed his mind. It seemed to them that there had been a change in the mind because they're noting the power of intercession or the power of God. Are you with me? So God doesn't react, never has. He's omniscient and he's immutable. Uh, J.I. Packer said, when we talk about the immutability of God, he said, when we're talking about the immutability of God, his character is immutable. His truth is immutable. Um, his being is immutable. But one of the things he said is his purpose is immutable. Meaning that if God doesn't change and he doesn't react. Now, by the way, all this is to get somewhere, so please stay with me. If God is immutable and he doesn't change and his purpose doesn't change, And if Romans 8 says I'm called according to his purpose, then God's plan for me doesn't change. God's purpose for me is unchanging. Listen to me. I don't know about you, but this helps me because it doesn't matter how much I've screwed up in my life. It doesn't matter whether I feel like today I'm winning or losing. It doesn't matter if I feel like I've sinned too much, gone too far, done too much, or not done enough. Because God is immutable, and because his purpose is immutable, then his purpose for me is immutable. The giftings and callings of God are without repentance. Come on, somebody. And you need to understand today that you can move forward regardless of what this world looks like and regardless of what's going on. Why? Because God's moving forward. His purpose is moving forward. His plan is moving forward. And you are created and called according to that plan. And God's purpose for you is fixed. God's purpose for you is movement. And so I want you to hear me today. Hear me today, church. It's time to stop staying stuck and it's time to own our lives Take initiative and move forward with God. It may look like a Red Sea, but that doesn't mean God's not calling us forward. And so my challenge really for all of us is 
that we get the heart of God. You, you could write this down. These, I'll give you three Ps. Um, pray, plot, proceed. You know, like if you want to plan forward. You have to take ownership of your life. You have to be proactive and pray. Now you just say, well, wait a second, Pastor. You know, God got on to Moses for praying. Well, yeah, but I think it's a difference in asking God to do something and asking God what you need to do. Those are different prayers. And so today, if you're, this year, we're going to move forward. Number one, ask God, what do I need to do to move forward? What do I need to do? Not, not like, God, I wish you would. God, I, I hope you do. God, no, no, no. God, what do I need to do to move forward? That's number one. And then you, make a pl- you plot a course based on what God shows you. You plot a course. Maybe start a business. Maybe it's change jobs. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's forgive someone. I don't know what it is. But you plot a course. All right, God. I'm moving forward. You said go forward, and this is the course. I'm going forward, and then I'm going to proceed. I'm going to proceed forward. I'm actually going to carry this, this plan out. Right? So I'm going to pray. I'm going to plot it out. I'm going to proceed. Listen to me very, very carefully. I think the word of the Lord, and this came one of our elders' uh, text. I didn't even know what I'd be preaching on this. Like two weeks ago, I think, I got a text, and he was talking about how the Lord was speaking to him about advancement. And to me, it was just confirmation because I already knew what the Lord was talking to me about moving forward. And I think it's the word of the Lord that we stop living in reaction to the world around us. And by the grace of God, of children of God who are called according to the purpose of God, in unity, right, with Him, in collaboration with Him, we plot a course forward and we move forward this year. And we don't live in reaction to the world, right? We move forward. You say, what if something happens? We just find a different way to move forward. But we move forward. Because I don't know about you. I don't want to live the rest of my life sitting back here thinking about the pandemic and thinking about this and this. Gonna... No, 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 no. God's too big for that. God's too big for that. And God's plan for you is too big for that. And God's calling on you is too great for that. This year, we find the way forward. This year, we're going forward. Amen? Amen. Come on. Can you give Jesus praise today? Hey, Pastor Marty here from Pathway Church, and I just want to say thank you for joining us, and I want to encourage you to get connected and stay connected, and there's several ways you can do that. Number one, you can download the Pathway app, and we are all the time offering resources and information on that app for you. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, and if you do, make sure you click the bell so that you never miss any life-giving and life-changing content as we add it to the channel, and then also Uh, Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook. Look, our hope and heart for you is that you walk in the purpose for which God made and created and redeemed you for. We love to connect people to purpose. We thank you for giving us this opportunity. And if you're ever in Longview or you are in Longview, I'd love to invite you to join us in person each weekend. Listen, I pray God's best for your life. I believe if you follow Jesus, your best is ahead.